Welcome back to Butter With That, a movie podcast hosted by your favorite people and a couple of friends from Philadelphia. I'm Sam, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Connor, Christine, and Dave. Hello, everybody. How are you? Doing great. Hanging in. More of the same. Yeah. Christine, it's nice to have you back again. It's uh, so nice to be back in the full swing of Butter With That. Um, I missed you guys, and I missed chatting and shooting shit. Yeah. Yeah, I'm doing doing all right. Okay, well, I'm glad that we're all doing well. So we are continuing and kind of wrapping up our theme of movies that have brought us to the theater multiple times. Um, can I say that I love that we always have, like, kind of complex themes or very, very simple ones? I really love that we do this. So I'm really excited to bring my pick to the group and to our listeners. But have y'all seen anything pretty good lately before we jump into that? I saw something pretty awesome. And that was the new Predator movie, Prey. Um, I think we talked about it on the last episode, but we had some. Mm-hmm. We were over at a friend's and other friends came over and said, guys, you got to watch this movie. Have you heard of it? And I was like, I have. Was it good? And they're like, it was awesome. And lo and behold, Prey um, was awesome. I feel like we don't get a lot of movies that are like, you know, have good characters, motivations, nice action, structure. Like it kind of does it all. Um, And it's not terribly complicated. I like what they did to the like this kind of new predator. Um, I think it's a total home run of a movie. And uh, Dan Trenchenberg is from Philadelphia, which is cool. Who is he? Is he directed 10 Cloverfield Lane? Oh, he's the director. Oh, yeah. And. I feel like 10 Cloverfield Lane was also one of those movies that kind of came out of the blue. It was part of a larger, well, secretly part of a larger universe. And I think everyone kind of watched it maybe with like medium expectations and everyone was like, this is a gem and also effective, but quite simple premise. Yeah, I agreed there. So definitely recommend Prey. It's on Hulu. I would love to see it on the big screen. So probably never, but it'd be cool if one day they released it in theaters. Well, I um, I recently caught again, Christine. That's uh, one of your recommendations, Kimmy, uh, Soderbergh film, uh, starring Zoe Kravitz. Uh, really had a great time with that movie. I found it to be one of the better that I've seen so far this year. Uh, just a very, very kinetic camera work that really accentuates a sense of anxiety. Um, really interesting themes about like surveillance and uh, content moderation. Uh, and content moderators, really ang- anxiety-provoking film, but uh, definitely a very interesting and cool watch. Uh, extremely well shot and uh, very well acted. So I, I definitely recommend checking out Kimmy. I forget where I watched it, um, but it is streaming somewhere right now. And uh, yeah, if you have the time, that's definitely worth a look. One of the better ones of 2022, in my opinion. Once again, Soderbergh declaring he's going out of re- or like going into retirement and then comes out and doesn't have another movie. And it's like, Oh, well actually that's my last one. Oh, well the pandemic hit. So now I have to make a movie <laughs> about the pandemic. That's not contagion. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Kimmy was a lot of fun. I 
uh, watched Twister and I was convinced I had already seen all of Twister, but watching like it, I realized that there were scenes that I had never seen. So it was wonderful to see it from start to finish. Um, my friend described the, watching this movie, I think in a really wonderful way that it was a, a paella of character actors of the mid nineties. And I think that is so, so accurate. Like, like an ensemble cast, certainly we've got, you know, uh, Helen Hunt and, um, Bill Paxton RIP, but you've got Philip Seymour Hoffman, you've got, um, uh, Carrie El- Elwes. Uh, or L- L- Eels or whatever, yeah. However you pronounce, just as like the the meteorologist villain, Ugh, like, and also the way that they try to create drama in this movie is hilarious because it ultimately ends up having four climaxes, which I couldn't believe. Total fun, some hilarious, some nice mix of you know practical effects or like work, but also some like clouds that look like ass. Uh, in a great <laughs> way. So I had a lot of fun with Twister. Yeah, that movie is a real thrill ride. I just recently had my roommate watch that movie for the first time. So clearly it's going around. And now that is a film I wish I could have seen on the big screen too. Um, maybe on some anniversary, they'll bring it back. That would be amazing. But moving along to a movie that I've seen multiple times in the theater, my pick is Spider-Man No Way Home. So this is the latest, the most recent uh, Tom Holland Spider-Man movie. And this came out in December of 2021. So the fact that I saw this multiple times in theaters is pretty significant. I usually see Marvel movies two to three times in the theaters but with the pandemic and everything i didn't think a movie was going to do that uh because i I haven't gone all that often so the fact that i've i saw this more than once really says just how much i loved it now uh obviously i've seen this a couple times i've i i bought it the day that it came out on uh amazon prime and i've made my roommates watch it so i've seen it a lot uh so who has seen this movie before whose first time was it uh i also saw in theaters um probably opening weekend or the week after and so this was my second time seeing it for the episode i had seen it uh streaming and then i watched it in silent over someone's shoulder on an airplane so it was a refresher and then in preparation for this episode, instead of watching it again, I watched Homecoming. So now I've seen all three in the series. And this was my first time seeing uh, this movie or, uh, for that matter, any of the uh, John Watts, Tom Holland, Spider-Man movies. Uh, did make it a point to see all three in preparation for this. And uh, yeah, it was uh, it was interesting. Just like quick shout out, Dave, Christine, I really appreciate you guys watching the other movies in this trilogy. That means a lot to me. So you kind of knew that the context of this. So thank you for doing that. Definitely. Thank you also for filling me in on some key details in that Mm -hmm. I started because I was like, oh, so I watched Far From Home thinking that it was the new one. Because I found it on like a streaming set, like a random sure. streaming site. So, of course, I'm not given a lot of details anyway. So I, it's not until I'm like the third way through this movie that I'm like, okay, something's not 
clicking. This is clearly not the new movie everyone's been talking about. So I finished Far From Home and then ended up watching No Way Home. But then I was like, oh, I want to like see the origin story because I'm really enjoying Tom Holland and I want to like, you know, see him like, you know, getting all of his spideys uh, together. And then I realized that there's no origin story. <laughs> Spideys together. I or I don't know, like getting his spidey senses. Yeah, you know? that's, that's, it works. The Peter I Tingle. Just lo- like, I just love that Spider-Man's origin story is basically a kid going through puberty. Like, <laughs> and, and that's what's so funny about all the other Spider-Man origins. Uh, and I, but I didn't get to see that with Tom Holland. But it's okay, because there's some other cool things that are introduced and made fresh in this new series. Uh, great. Well, uh, again, I really appreciate it. Now, No Way Home. I said it came out in 2021, directed by John Watts. The screenplay was by Chris McKenna and uh, Chris McKenna and Eric Summers. Stars Tom Holland, Zendaya, Jacob Bathalone, uh Benedict Cumberbatch, Jamie Foxx, Willem Dafoe, Alfred Molina, Benedict Wan. I, I mean, I'm really going on. Marissa Tomei, Andrew Garfield, Tobey Maguire, and more um in the budget area it it had a a budget of uh, 200 million and at the box office made nearly two billion dollars so uh that is certainly a a box office smash if i have to say so myself it's definitely the highest grossing film of the spider-man franchise even when you compare it to um the toby and andrews and i think it's like like the sixth highest grossing movie of all time. So it it definitely broke some records. Now, just a quick overview of the movie for folks who haven't seen it before. I stole this from Rotten Tomatoes. So if you hate it, it's not my fault. But also thank you to whoever wrote this. So for the first time in cinematic history of Spider-Man, our friendly neighborhood hero's identity is revealed, bringing his superhero responsibilities into conflict with his normal life and putting those he cares about most at risk. When he enlists Doctor Strange's help to restore his secret, the spell tears a hole in their world, releasing the most powerful villains who've ever fought a Spider-Man in any universe. Now Peter will have to overcome his greatest challenge yet, which will not only forever alter his own future, but the future of the multiverse. Um, (laughs) so I want to start this off by saying like obviously I'm bringing this to the group because I fucking loved this movie Uh, I cried I laughed I left the theater feeling hopeful and just feeling a lot of joy if you didn't like it that is totally fine and I want to hear why Um, so just know that like I won't take it personally this is one of those I won't everything else yes but not this one (laughs) Um, so what do we think about it? I think there's a lot to love about uh, No Way Home. And I, the Sam, I love that you picked this as movies you return to the box office for because this movie made almost $2 billion. And so you are one of millions of people who saw it in multiple times in theaters. I mean, this movie just kept performing uh, at the box office just week after week for months on end. So really fitting pick. Um, especially as a pandemic era movie, like this was one of the films to really bring the box office back to life uh, right at the end of 2021. Uh, This quickly jumped up to one of my favorite MCU movies. Uh, I'm a big Spider-Man fan, like in general, but I think um, 
the MCU has used him pretty well. And I think they're not my favorite Marvel movies, at least the first two, but I think there's a lot to enjoy with Homecoming and Far From Home. And I think No Way Home, uh, if you're going to, in my opinion, really nail it, good thing to do it on the last movie. Um, and I'm really excited to dig into the characters that come back, uh, the comic book kind of feelingness of it, um, and kind of its role in the MCU. But overall, I think this is, yeah, it's in my top five favorite MCU movies. So I have a, like, I think the Tobey Maguire Spider-Mans are like near and dear to my heart. It's probably just like a generational thing too. I mean, like, we're not that, I don't like I don't know. I just remember seeing Spider-Man 1 in the movie theaters and like I was obsessed. I, I like I loved it. I I did return back to the theater to see it. My friend was like obsessed obsessed. Um and so that like I will always hold dear. But I really do enjoy Tom Holland as a Spider-Man. I think he's a great performer and I might dare to say that he I've seen maybe, actually, no, I'll say Toby for life, but I really do like uh, Tom Holland. Uh, I think he has the pep. I think he like feels age appropriate for Spider-Man. And I feel like Garfield and Toby might've been pushing it a little bit um, as far as, cause he's fundamentally a teenager. Um, and I think that it works with the mentor mentee relationship. He ultimately has with, uh, with Iron Man all out. Um, but I guess I don't have like that much context for the whole, the larger MCU universe. So I get, I got a little confused with when they're bringing in all these different characters who I don't really have any context for, but I think uh, his crew, his friends, his like, you know, uh, like MJ and him, it's cute. And so I, yeah, I generally had a good, uh, a good time. I think when we get to it, I'll have more on the seeing all three Spider-Mans together, which I sort of have conflicted feelings about. Uh, like Christine, I have to chime in and say that I am a very big fan of the Raimi uh, Spider-Man movies, the ones from the early 2000s. Um, really like their their campiness, their tone. They They feel to me very much like a comic book slash superhero movie should um taking the story seriously but not taking itself too seriously which i really enjoy um i've not seen any of the garfield ones uh because i've heard that they are not worth my time um uh, that having been said uh i think this movie pretty interestingly uh pokes fun at that idea and gives uh garfield even without seeing those movies something of a, a of a meta redemption himself as an actor which is cool as i said i watched all three of these movies uh the the John Watts Spider-Man movies uh, found them all to be uh, f- for Marvel movies because I'm I'm up and down on Marvel. I found them all to be really engaging, really entertaining, had a good time with all of them. I do think this one may be my least favorite of the three. Um, I think in part because I just I have a certain resentment of uh, mining nostalgia and uh, in, incorporating IP uh, in order to to peak interest and sell tickets that having been said though i think this movie better than other movies that have done that i'm looking at you space jam uh does a really good job of of rooting that in uh meaningful ways within the narrative so i i I didn't have as much of a problem with it as i usually do and was impressed by that 
Um, on the whole, yeah, I walked away pretty satisfied with this movie. Uh, it's not it's not my favorite of the three. Uh, not my favorite of the Spider-Man movies. Not my favorite Marvel movie, which actually uh, would probably be Into the Spider-Verse. Uh, but I did really enjoy it. So uh, looking forward to uh, getting more into the the web that this movie spins. Cool. That's great. Thank you, everybody. Now, I... I have very strong opinions on Marvel movies. We all know this. Y'all know that. Uh, It's so funny. Yesterday, I said uh, to a couple folks at work, like, don't yuck someone else's yum. I'm like, I like to live my life that way. And then I looked at uh, uh, a friend and and someone who listens to the podcast, and we both went, no, that's not true. (laughs) I definitely have strong opinions. But we all know that Captain America Winter Soldier is my favorite Marvel movie. I still think it's the best one they've ever made. However, I would definitely place this one either number two or if I'm being honest, probably like the best Marvel movie that they've done so far. I think that this is because I I love Spider-Man so much. He means a lot to me. But also... This, as I said in my notes, is like a once in a lifetime film. And I think that Dave, everything you said that you normally hate when movies like call back to like nostalgia and things like that. I mean, that's exactly why I love this movie. It really feels like a love letter to fans. And I needed that. I was really starting to feel a little not um burned out on Marvel movies, but I had just been so disappointed by Endgame that I I was like, you know, I'm just, I'm not excited anymore. I'm not really feeling it. And phase four has sort of been hit and miss. I think there's been like some really wonderful things, but I also haven't watched everything because I haven't been that interested. So to have this movie care about the fans so much was so refreshing like really a breath of fresh air and i think they do it in in a lot of different ways yeah a couple callbacks that like you know if you're fans of they definitely did more callbacks for toby's um because i i think that yeah the the andrew ones aren't aren't great um but there was also just so much heart and so much love for these characters that like i I felt it. And and uh, the first time I saw it, I brought Tori along and, you know, Tori hadn't really seen any of the movies and she was like crying. She loved it too. Um, so I think that like really speaks to just why it's so great. One thing that I really love about the Spider-Man movies in general is the world building that happens in here. And I think like in general, if I was going to say like a, like a critique about the Marvel movies is that they don't do a great job of really showing you what regular people are doing and what that world looks like with all of these superheroes. You were really just focused on those stories, but in all of the spider Spider-Man Tom Holland movies, we actually really get that. And I think even in this one too. Um, and I was wondering like, is that something you feel about these movies? Did you pick that up in this film too? What are your thoughts? I I did really uh, like, and I maybe it was also helpful for me not having context for what was going on in the larger Avengers universe, but you have it in Homecoming 
where, I mean, the whole sort of origin story of uh, Michael Keaton's villain is that he has a contract to clean up the mess from from Civil War, where like alien uh, Earth was exploded by aliens. <laughs> I got enough. There's shards of metal that fell from the sky and had to be cleaned. Kind of, maybe, pretty much. Okay. So, but I, but to your point, Sam, I liked that it was. It felt like it was threaded in a way that it was providing context and a reminder of what had happened in another movie but also really fleshes out a world that has been suddenly impacted by a cataclysmic event. Uh, believable, no, but like within this universe, it, it made sense that people would feel resentment or it would impact their jobs. And so like, you know, you get a little bit of that from Michael Keaton's character or whatever. Um, Dave, I know you had some issues with the a government contractor being stamped down by the government. And well, a, a, a private contractor with a, a city contract being stamped out by the government. Yeah. And yeah. that making him the villain. I'm not crazy about that idea yes. and those implications, but yes, uh, I would agree. Uh, but as far as world building and seamlessly incorporating other elements from other stories in a way that feels within that universe, believable, I, I liked. And then in uh, No Way Home, or I guess maybe Far From Home, that's after Endgame, right? Where everyone disappears, like a third of the world disappears and you get message, you get references to that. And it's like kids being impacted by that and like them talking about it. It's like watching kids essentially wrestle with PTSD from like this world. Now, it sort of touches lightly, but I think it does a good job of world building. I've got to agree on that front. I mean, I think the thing I struggle with with several Marvel movies, in particular like the Avengers uh, movies, is that, you know, we're we're seeing these – it's a movie almost exclusively populated by, you know, uh, metahumans, by super beings. And it's just sort of these like, you know – ripped adonises that are all very nice uh and like it's just a tone that i'm not crazy about and like a world building focus that doesn't really grab me so seeing uh see having the opportunity to spend a lot of time with real people within a world of superheroes in this movie uh and in the other ones i think it's a really smart move i think it's especially prominent in uh far from home the one before this because we spent it's it's the first like third of that movie is kind of like a hangout vacation movie with teenagers which is very fun um, so yeah, definitely, uh, definitely big points uh, to this franchise or this these installments of this franchise for taking the time to tell us more about what life is like on the streets for human beings in a world populated by superheroes. And I think instead of trying to like, I don't know, cram something into like the MCU. I mean, the writers and John Watts, you know, they've all been forced to kind of pick up the pieces of Avengers, that's kind of after Homecoming, Civil War is after, you know, that's Homecoming, Far From Home is after The Blip, and then this is, you know, uh, No Way Home is after Endgame, so I think, you know, Spider-Man's such a great POV, because he is, he's super-powered, but he can't fly, is not invincible, Um, and so I think he's a really, he's been a great kind of of point-of-view character, and a really great, I mean, there's a reason why he's been around, you know, for almost 100 years. Um, and so I think it's the writers have been really smart in leaning into Peter Parker, having to pick up the pieces of all these huge MCU events. And they give you enough just to kind of, you know, if you're unfamiliar with the MCU to understand what the emotional stakes are. Um, and I think they've done a really good job of threading that needle for three movies, which, 
along with building like a really enjoyable cast of characters, which I missed a little in No Way Home. I think the high school friends kind of lose out to Norman Osborn and Doc Ock, which is okay. I'm okay with that, but I did miss um, kind of the high school-ness um, of um, the previous two movies, but Spider-Man had to grow up, which is a lot of kind of what this movie's about. And I think that to, to that point, Connor, we know there's going to be more Spider-Man, Spider-Man movies. So perhaps that is something we return to eventually. Um, I think what No Way Home does really well is shows that like, hey, world building doesn't have to be something that's like really intricate. It can actually be small moments. So specifically like uh, Aunt May and her like community center just having us go there and seeing that like she has a life outside of Peter and that, you know, Spider-Man helps out with that, but like, it's a real place that matters. And the statue of Liberty having the uh, Captain America shield. I saw that. And I like also wept in the theater because it just, it makes so much sense. And it's like, I, I could, yeah, I think that that would happen. So simple moments that are really really meaningful and you know some other things that this movie does is have cameos so uh matt murdoch is spider-man's lawyer in here and it confirmed that charlie cox is returning as daredevil which I screamed in the theater I, yeah it was um, a big deal i i would love daredevil sorry what can you so just... yeah so daredevil uh, big comics Ben Affleck movie from 2003. Oh yes, oh um, yes. <laughs> It's one of the best, I think, just in general Netflix original series that they made with Charlie Cox, three seasons. Uh, and so he's the lawyer that's blind, and he catches the brick, kind of toward the beginning of the movie. Mm, and so totally missed that. there were rumors that he was. I mean, there were lots of rumors surrounding this movie, so I tried to just ignore everything, just to go in blind. And when he just appears, just suddenly in frame, I, I scream. Because I, I, I think Charlie Cox is a great actor. I love Daredevil. And I'm thrilled that he's getting his own 18-episode Disney Plus series, which sounds excessive, but they, if they're doing more than six, so it's got to have a good story behind it, right? In theory. Sorry to totally derail Sam, but that was one moment in the theater that was so much... And I, I assume we're going to talk about this. Like This was just such a fun movie to watch in theaters. Um, with these surprises. I mean, I knew that Toby and Andrew were going to be in it, but I didn't see anything. But I was like, they're going to be in it, but I haven't seen anything. Maybe they won't do it. And I think this movie does a really good job of teasing out its reveals and its cameos in some surprising ways. Yeah, definitely. I mean, this reminded me me of how much fun I have seeing movies because everyone else in the theater was going, oh my God, you know, and it, and it, and it is so special to be a part of something like that. I guess, I guess I found the whole marketing and rollout kind of exhausting. Maybe it's because I like didn't know enough to like get excited. Um, but the whole secrets of like who was gonna be in it, I feel like it it happens with every Marvel movie, and I feel like it's now just part of their shtick to like make sure actors don't reveal anything during uh press junkets and it's always like mums the word so that they generate interest and and feel like after a while it it like feels exhausting as well like a marketing campaign but all that said i ha i like 
as you as you were talking about the excitement of watching the theaters, I remember seeing Iron Man one and the stinger at the end and being like, holy shit, this is going to be a part of a much bigger thing. And so that was a reminder that like, I feel like I could reaccess the mat or like, not that the magic was all back in those days. Cause I rewatched uh, some Iron Man's and I was like, mm, yeah, all right, it's kind of good, but kind of like Robert Downey Jr. I'm kind of over, but but I, I do remember that theater experience and being like, oh, we're going to put all the pieces together and this will be a fun, uh, like, superhero uh, network, so to speak. But I feel like now it just feels like to be expected. And then every movie after has to, like, one-up itself by, like, having these secret reveals and the cameos and all that. But um, I don't want to put a damper on it, but it just felt like the marketing was, like, a little... Did that detract from your enjoyment of the movie, Christine, you think? Or was that kind I of... Ex- well, I guess I was expecting the two other Spider-Mans, and I was like, when is it going to happen? And then that took me away from watching the story. Yeah, cameos abound. Uh, a lot of them in this movie. Ugh, Willem Dafoe. What a, what a house on fire. Every single time. Uh, I mean, a huge fan of Dafoe's. Uh, just biggest grin on my face watching him step back into the skin of Norman Osborn. He perfectly comes back. He, is, he hasn't missed a beat in all these years. He can pick up right where he left off. There's the one <clears throat> one series of shots in the one scene when they're fighting, and I think it's like uh, it's some building. Just having this real row. He and uh, Holland as Peter Parker, uh, and there's just like he's Holland is throwing these haymaker punches right at Defoe's face. And with each one, Defoe smiles a little bit wider and wider. So menacing, so insane. Uh, truly, uh, truly great. And the real standout of this movie for me. Um, some other really great work here, too, though. Molina uh, does a good job picking up where he left off. I think some of the digital de-aging is a little clumsy looking, but he does a good job stepping back into that role as well. And then there's the the three Spider-Men, uh, the three different iterations of Peter Parker. And I think they're all pretty interesting in their own right and all very true to form of uh, of their respective uh, performances and uh, and embodiments of Peter Parker. Uh, I mean, that said, I, as I said before, I've not seen the Garfield ones. But Garfield, uh, among the three, was the real standout for me. I think he brought uh, a great deal of heart and charm to the role so he's a bit of a beacon in this movie as well. It's also just funny that timing-wise, Garfield is at the peak of his career right now. Like He's doing well. He, he is, I would say Holland also, because of the Spider-Mans, in a peak of his career. But it's kind of the perfect uh, comeback where it's like, everyone hated my contribution to this franchise, but guess who's laughing now because I am at the height of my career. And cool to see them, like, make room for him. Like, they really address, like, in some very, like, tongue-in-cheek ways that it's felt that those movies weren't very good. But that he was a pretty good Spider-Man, or at least a pretty good Peter Parker. Tobey Maguire, I think, is really asleep at the wheel in this movie. I think he did a pretty bad job. <laughs> but that's that's just me. Can I just say how I thought it was so funny how I love the reveal. Uh, well, so Ned, he's able to like do magic sorcerer stuff. All right, that's, that's yeah. Right. Why? Because <laughs> yeah, like, we need to get the Spider Men here. 
Well, I think well, what they're well, doing. Well, he's, he's, he leads into something, right? Isn't that yeah. eh, always? Yeah, he's okay. going to be Hobgoblin. So I think yeah. that that's actually like what they're doing for the sequels. And that that means something. But I get it. I get it. For the Yeah, I'm sure I'm sure I'll love that moment years down the line. But so he's able to bring the Spider-Man back. And it's such a tease of the reveal of you're like, oh, he's like, bring Peter Parker back, bring Peter Parker back. And then a portal opens and then you see a Spider-Man far off running up and you're like, oh my God, they're doing it. Is it Toby? Is it Andrew? And then Andrew Garfield comes in and it's like, the, I mean, the crowd erupted with cheers, mm-hmm. um, which I don't think anybody would thought would ever happen for his Spider-Man. <laughs> um, and so it's like, great. And then he gets like, there's some humor. It's like, well, well, prove your Peter Parker. He does the jump. Then he climbs to the ceiling. He gets the cobweb for Ned's grandma. Um, which is hilarious. And then they bring Tobey Maguire in and it looks like he just walked off, walked out of a Coles. <laughs> like, I don't know. So I was like a little under, I was, I, to go, kind of going back to Dave's point, I was like, oh, we have this great intro. And it's like, oh, hey, I'm Tobey Maguire. Hey, I'm here. Well, I hear that. But also, so in Into the Spider-Verse, remember when we get Peter B. Parker and he's kind of like, older he's tired he's like not really doing the spider-man thing anymore i kind of think like that's where we are with toby like obviously he's still spider-man but he's older now and it's one of the first times we've seen a superhero actually age and be older so perhaps except for logan well, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, but that's very different. Uh, well, I guess it's not. Um, but I guess, well, I do think it's perhaps like an underbaked performance. I see what he was going for. Maybe he didn't make the right choices, but like, I see it. I get um, that the script kind of demands that. But yeah, I could have used more, I don't know, enthusiasm from his performance, maybe. But yeah, I, I get that he's like, he's older, he's wiser, he's, well, you know, a little bit more um, experienced than the other two. And th- th- that does resonate, uh, whether or not it's, you know, uh, an, ex- <laughs> an excuse for uh, a little bit of, I guess, an underwhelming performance, I don't know. But but I do see where you're coming from, and that does make sense. I also don't think, even though I'm Toby for life, Toby McGuire is not a great actor. I mean, I think... Maybe this group can agree on that. <laughs> He's been in some great Not movies. a great guy either. <laughs> uh, Don's Plum. Uh, uh, among other things, yeah. Uh, yeah, so there's that. And yeah, I think he's just kind of asleep at the wheel. But I have a theory that even though this movie was basically surrounded by the anticipation of seeing these three performers of Spider-Man together, I don't think that they were filming at the same time. A lot of those shots feel very uh, stitched together. Uh, and I so think you have a point there, particularly when they're at the Statue of Liberty. Yeah. I think you're right. I wanted to see, like, I feel like the emotions maybe would have come if like, it really felt like they were in the same room with one another. Like, like the lighting just fell off. I feel like when they had through and granted, they all have their own shit going on. You know, it was also filmed during a pandemic and I totally get that, but there felt still something that, that felt not quite together about bringing these characters 
in a space and like reveling in that. Um, but that was just my little kind of bone to pick. I, I don't know if they'll ever reveal like what the actual um, shooting schedules were and whether they, you know, were in the same room. Maybe two of them would shoot one day and then they had to kind of like piece together the third one or had different permutations, but I don't know. I do think, well, I, I do agree with that. I love the scene where they're together in the high school chem lab trying to like all they're all peter parkering sciencing kind of like inventing figuring out stuff like i think the interplay when we do get those moments i think the dynamics between the three of them um is really strong especially i mean andrew garfield just makes so many amazing just small acting choices in this movie mm-hmm. um that's going back to movies that you, you know going to the theater to see twice i think seeing his performance twice really pays off when it's revealed that Toby Maguire can shoot the webs just out of his skin, like out of his arm. He's like, uh, and, why? How did yeah. you do that? And if you watch it, he just, his eyes are fixated like on his wrist for the next like 15 seconds as the scene goes on. And then he kind of like snaps out of it. Um, so I think when we do get those moments, I think they, for me, they were pretty effective uh, and pretty powerful. And just as you're sitting in the theater, you're like, wow, this is like, I don't know. It's like nerdy and dumb. Cause it's, marvel but it's such a cool moment to be like in a theater experiencing this when you're like oh there's all this red tape with sony and actor schedules and COVID. i don't i'm i mean i initially thought that oh just be a cameo maybe it's just melina who's the main you know doc ock is in it and then everyone else is just very small but i was really impressed with the the tricks that they pulled off to really feel like all of these villains and these heroes have a really critical role to play in the story and with the themes I guess, and that is pretty cool, that this was a film where everyone opted in, from villains to Spider-Man. And you sort of laying that out, Connor, definitely, you make a great point of, like, it's not just seeing the three Spider-Mans. It's sort of, like, in a time of sort of real-world chaos. Granted, it's a, you know, a big-budget movie, and people are cashing it, like, going in for the big paychecks, definitely. But it's kind of fun to see everyone opt in and even like people like Willem Dafoe. And on that point, though, there's a quote from Tom Holland where he said the only way this would have worked is it was everybody or nobody. And I think that that is really incredible that they just worked this hard to create something like this. And, you know, I have to give a lot of props to Tom Holland. I mean, he's really the reason why Sony and Marvel went back to discussion about keeping Spider-Man in the MCU because they had said no and fans and Tom Holland, they were just like heartbroken. So, you know, and the fact that like the third movie would come back and be this is just like, thank God. Can you briefly just give a timeline of, that whole Spider-Man, Sony, MCU drama? Because I don't think I have all the context for this. Yeah, I can't remember exactly what year it was. It was probably like 2019, I think. So the the deal that Sony and Marvel had was um, two Spider-Man movies and like appearance in Avengers movies. And I think it was something like, 
Marvel would get like 5% of the profits and Sony could keep everything else. They just like really wanted him in the MCU. But after all those movies came out, Marvel was like, well, we really did a lot of work here. And like, we want to split profits a, a little bit more evenly. And Sony was like, absolutely not. And you know, from where Sony is coming from, I hear it. That's really the like the only property that they have. Um, I mean, they they put out like, well, Venom and it's a fun time, but it's certainly not going to break any box office records. And then fucking Morbius, like what the fuck? So like they, they need this. Yeah, they need this. Um, so they had said the door is closed. Uh, we will make more Spider-Man movies, but he's not going to be a part of the MCU. And everyone was heartbroken. I mean, I remember being really upset and the fans just went off. And I, and I mean, like everywhere, Twitter, Instagram, um, so many other places too. And then Tom Holland went to, he brought the Sony execs and Marvel together and was like, we have to figure this out. So like, what an incredible thing to do to, to keep this happening, to, to make things make sense and to, to continue to make some really good films. What I think is also interesting is that it's Andrew Garfield's movies that allowed a Tom Holland MCU Spider-Man to exist. Mm-hmm. And then because of the success of that, then they went back to renegotiate the deal. Then Andrew Garfield comes to this MCU movie with like this new, it's, it's just a really kind of fascinating, just juggling and behind gonna, the scenes. I'm going to say one thing and then I kind of want to move on to something we've sort of already been talking about. Andrew Garfield is the best Peter Parker. The movies were not good, but to, to comic book, Peter Parker, it's Andrew Garfield. And Tori and I like turned to each other in the theater and we were both like, is Andrew Garfield Spider-Man? Is he it? And that was a, a really fun moment to have. But, you know, something that we've kind of been talking about is how impactful certain scenes are and how much we enjoyed it, which really brings me to kind of the the big point i wanted to make which is about like what i think is this movie's phenomenal script connor i think in our award show episode i think you and i we we both picked no way home for something and i can't remember if it was screenwriting both of us or we picked it for different things i think it was screenwriting question mark yeah I think I think that it was because like what an incredible lift that these folks had to do. They had to make sure that they weren't biting off too much that they could chew. And, and I think that they do it. And, you know, for me, what it boils, pardon me, what it boils down to is like these ethical questions of choice and redemption. And I was wondering like what you thought about that. And is that the right way to interpret this movie? I think it's a really interesting vantage point to like, I mean, with great power comes great responsibility. That is Spider-Man. As we know. So as we know, um, and Peter learns in this movie once again, which kind of, uh, we can go down that rabbit hole in a little, I guess. Um, So I think I really appreciated what that they were going for, but I, I don't know, like fixing that's a complicated 
I think, point of like, well, curing. Like, is it specifically curing. curing? Yeah. And so I think it's, I think it overall for me, like it works in this big budget, big temple, big Marvel movie. Um, but I think maybe more could have been like, was that, it seems like, uh, I mean, Norman Osborn says, you know, your aunt's holy crusade, you know, what, is this a totally righteous, the hundred percent moral right thing to do in terms of comic book movie, big temple movie. I think it works really well, but in a real life, I think it opens up some questions. I think it may be da- time for Dave's uh, Marvel contrarian corner uh, real quick here. Uh, I did write up something uh, with my thoughts about this because I do think a lot of people are talking about the redemption arc of this uh, in some interesting ways. One thing that I'm seeing in particular from a lot of fans and critics alike are articles, reviews, and think pieces about this film being a metaphor for restorative justice. Now, uh, I know my co-hosts are professionally familiar with this concept, uh, but for listeners who may not be familiar, uh, and you guys, of course, feel free to jump in to correct or, uh, or add to this description, restorative justice is in essence a process by which victim and perpetrator and sometimes a community representative come together to discuss the harm caused by a crime and how the perpetrator can redeem themselves through accountability and further corrective action. Uh, this process is intended to provide a more proactive and progressive alternative to incarceration. That's probably a decent description, I guess, right? More or less. So while this movie, I think, feels very seems very self-satisfied in broaching the subject, it doesn't quite fully grasp the accountability portion of that process. In this film, except for Doc, Doc, Doc Oct and Sandman, the villains have their superhuman powers or technologies stripped from them via serums at the unrepentant height of their villainy. So not only does the film lack a consensual conversation about regret and accountability, it's also stripping those villains of the means to commit the, their will through incapacitation, uh, which is more metaphorically akin to incarceration than restorative justice. I also find it a little strange that this projected sense of social significance is being heaped onto this movie as something that makes it a revolutionary standout in the genre when other superhero movies, including other Spider-Man movies, have approached this subject with a little more nuance and understanding. This is a a little excerpt from a letterbox review by user Kit, um, who, full disclosure, uh, did give No Way Home a a half-star rating, which I'd say is a little bit extreme. But I think they've got a pretty good point here. And this is to quote their review. Uh, in Spider-Man 2, Maguire's Peter Parker is able to convince Doc Ock to stop the reactor and destroy the actuators preying on his mind, which Otto does by drowning the reactor and himself in the river. Peter is able to do this, to reform him, or at least allow him to redeem himself by talking to him, by the recognition that they are not Spider-Man and Dr. Octopus, but Peter Parker and Otto Octavius, by appealing to the kind and gentle man that he used to be, the very personhood that lies at the core of a truly tragic villain. End quote. So while I respect that this movie has a lot of, invites a lot of different interpretations and approaches justice in some interesting ways and on some interesting terms, I just personally find that it falls a little short of that specific praise. And I wouldn't be as inclined to point it out if I didn't see so many people applauding this movie for exacting that metaphor without it fully grasping the concept. So on the whole, I do think it does get at some really interesting ideas as far as dealing with justice, second chances and things like that. But restorative justice specifically, I don't think this movie has a handle on any. Yeah, in no way. Shape or form. <laughs> yeah, I would never have said that this movie is like a, a good representation of restorative justice because the victims aren't there, first of all. 
I would never consider Spider-Man a victim in, in any of those ways and things. Um, so like that is very strange. Yeah, I found like a lot of different think pieces on the subject. And like one thing that I think is interesting too is you could approach it from the inverse perspective that maybe the restorative justice element is this individual Peter Parker's and Spider-Man taking accountability for how in the past they've dealt with these villains, i.e. killing them, but instead, you know, um, allowing that they're given the second chance. But the problem with that is that like we have several of these characters, uh, Electro, um, Sandman, uh, the Lizard, they all kind of encounter their transforming trauma that shapes their villainy absent interaction with Peter Parker or Spider-Man. They come in after the fact. So even then, I think that falls apart a little bit. Yeah. What I think, you know, listening to that, you know, seeing this movie twice, I, it's, you know, thinking about it, it seems like in this first half, it's a long movie. So the part where, you know, the part where he's like, we're doing it. There's a montage. We got the Tony Stark arc reactor. We're making things in this machine that can make anything in 10 minutes. It's great. Um, I, I think Spider-Man, Tom Holland, Spider-Man is doing the Tony Stark approach, which was his mentor of like, I'm going to make things to fix people. But at the end of the movie, you know, when he is just wailing, it's other Spider-Man, other Peter Parker who say, no, like this isn't the way. I don't know that maybe that's just a side thought, but I think if there's an interesting, I think, theming going on of like the Tony Stark way of doing something and then the Peter Parker way of doing something. I could be off base. I don't know. No, I, I get that. And they also have the contrast between he and Dr. Strange, who seems much more of the opinion that like only way to deal with these people is to send them back to die, which, yeah, I, I appreciate that there's a difference of opinion between he and Peter on that front. Like I said, I think that it's, yeah, it, it's got some really interesting approaches to justice as a metaphor. I just think that the, the phenomenon that I'm seeing of specifically assigning it to that process isn't quite accurate. Although I think the way it does handle it, if you're going to remove that element, is pretty interesting. Yeah, and and you know, like I think that when I put forth this idea of redemption and choice, you know, something that comes up for me is we have this conversation at work all the time of like, do people in prison have agency, and like who's allowed to answer that question? Because I certainly don't feel like I have that ability. And was this really a choice? It's yeah, it's just because like if at the end they're they're full steam villains and then they're, you know, hit with a serum. It doesn't feel as though there is much choice or agency in their redemption. It just sort of happens to them except for Doc Ock who does. And, and Sandman who do have a genuine turn. Although we've seen them have that genuine turn in Spider-Man two and three. So, And it's, it's like, it's so weird to think also about treating these characters like, it's like they're also at the whims of this like machine, like larger entertainment machine. And it feel a lot of those scenes feel like, I don't know how to fully describe this. It, there is an element of like taking a villain, reintroducing this villain and transforming them into something different where there is no sort of character agency either because it's in service of like this movie that's also trying, I'm not fully going to be able to articulate this thought, but it's like, I felt kind of bad for all of the villains, not because I wanted them to have a redemption narrative, but more just because they felt like they were being pushed in directions that didn't feel quite earned by the 
door or like that the story earned or the story was able to do. It's just like them being pulled in different directions because this larger production wants them to be something else. If that makes any sense. Well, I don't know if it's like the production wants them to be something else, but Aunt May and Peter want them to be something else. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, for me, I I don't, I, I don't, agree with it being like a metaphor for restorative justice i i just want to say like i love this movie and there's always like something deep and critical that we can take from films but like i also like want to acknowledge that like i don't personally feel like it's that deep um because like that is really significant i think maybe it's like surface level if if it is anything when it comes to restorative justice however you know this like savior attitude is incredibly problematic but you watch it come from a good place right you see aunt may completely like in in, like falling in a way for norman and she's like you have to help him he trusts you and like what's the the road to hell is paved with good intentions like we see it play out right there and i think that is really important the savior mm. complex and Spider-Man's issues with that, I think are played out really well in Homecoming when you do see this uh, montage of him going around the city, you know, trying to do good. And then he ends up uh, like attacking a guy who's like trying to get into his own car. And you see elements of that where it's like those were his attempts at being at sort of performing the the performing the character of savior and of super villain or not super villain, superhero, because that's what he sees in the other Avengers. But really he's not mature enough to really uh, be able to, to take that on quite yet. And I think that's, what's been really interesting about Holland Spider-Man is I think it's been cool to see a Spider-Man that goes to space. Cool to see a Spider-Man that's teamed up with Tony Stark and has infinite gadgets at his disposal but at the end of the day, the writers, I think, still have drilled down into, like, with great power comes great responsibility. With the savior, like, what is Spider-Man supposed to do? And he's been given the Stark arsenal. I mean, Far From Home deals with when he gets the glasses that can blow up anybody on the planet, pretty much. And so I think, like, what is Peter's responsibility? What's his role in society? And I think it's been great to see Holland, um, his Spider-Man, kind of figure that out and navigate it successfully in some ways and unsuccessfully in a lot of ways, too. You know, it's really interesting you point it that way, because I think in actually now that I'm reassessing it on those terms, I think that this movie actually is a really nice bow to put on the trilogy of these movies, because in the second one that you could, I think Far From Home is probably my favorite of the three, which Connor has told me is an unpopular opinion. But uh, but one thing I think that's really interesting is like, yeah, I mean, you could have called Far From Home Spider-Man Patriot Act, like the tech the surveillance technology and like this. Uh, uh, yeah, this power that no one should really be able to wield. But then, yeah, he doesn't, it doesn't really carry over into this one. He seems to have shifted Peter Parker, or at least Peter Parker 1, or Peter Parker Prime, Tom Holland's Peter Parker, uh, since we're dealing with several, uh, really does a good job of kind of shedding that attitude in service of something more um, uh, more uh, transformative in addressing criminality. And I think that that's, yeah, it's a really nice capstone to put at the end of these this trio of movies, especially after he's given such uh, a Tony Stark-esque level of like surveillance and like military power that he he takes a different road with it, which is, is you know, a really nice uh, 
a really nice way to end to finally finally cross the bridge between the difference between Tony Stark and Peter Parker, as Peter has so wanted to be Tony Stark this whole time. He's kind of finding his own way through it now, which is 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 a cool way to wrap it up. And he doesn't get into MIT, which was Tony's alma mater. Oh, that though. Okay, this is <laughs> this is maybe one other thing, real quick. So at the end of Far From Home, the stakes are such that Mysterio, Jake Gyllenhaal. Has been uh, has pulled off this tremendous psyop, and everyone thinks he's such a hero fighting these elementals. And then that all kind of like unravels in this fight with Spider-Man in London. Uh, but he, Mysterio still gets this message out and is understood to be like saying, like, look, I'm still the hero. I'm trying to trying to protect uh, London from these elementals, from these monsters. And Peter Parker got in my way. By the way, Peter Parker is Spider-Man. So like when this movie starts, I understand it's like geared toward like young adults and younger kids mostly but like for the stakes to be like oh no everyone knows i'm peter parker and i can't get into college versus like you would be a wanted international terrorist and for that not to be an issue at all like the stakes are just really weird at the beginning of this movie before he makes uh that whole um I, I wish i guess or or makes that uh what is it spell i suppose uh, it just it, like it feels weird that like the worst he gets is like a brick through the window and can't go to college instead of like you killed a hero and like sicked a bunch of drones on London. That's yeah. I mean, yeah. But I guess they but do it's fine. It is for younger audiences, it. and it's it's nice for it to be more geared toward their experience. So I don't have a problem with it. I just thought as an adult, I'm like, wait, what? What about the like international implications of all this? I mean, he does get arrested. They all do, but then you know Matt Murdock is able to come in and kind uh, of yeah, right. That's true. Clean that up pretty quickly. So in, in that regard, I think you're totally on the money. I mean, there's also a big confusion of like what a like a normal teenage experience is, and like <laughs> also existing in a world of like catastrophe. So like like in Far From Home, I mean, the school field trip, like the the building explodes and these kids, you know, it's like, this is their normal experience on a school field yeah. trip. I feel like these kids already, these, these kids conception of like what normal life is, is already completely upturned in many ways. So maybe the, like the worst thing that could happen to Spider-Man is not getting into MIT is once again, a <laughs> weird distorted, uh, representation of like what his life is like in this world yeah maybe that explains like their nonchalance like it's like this is i mean a few years ago there was the blip and half of everyone disappeared like you know but it's everything is crazy but also i can't get into college <laughs> but <laughs> the worst thing is that i couldn't get it so like yeah yeah i yeah i, I it's not it's not a problem it's just interesting I think everything is upturned <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, you know, Peter Parker, he was part of the blip, right? Like, how do you mm -hmm. reconcile that everyone, well, except for all of his friends who also got blipped, um, <laughs> like, how do you reconcile that, like, you missed five years? I I think that I would probably do my best to just be like, yep, I'm going to live life as normal as I can. And if I'm going to be upset about not getting into any school, uh, okay, that's normal. And I think what yeah. made those emotional stakes work for me is that um, it's so tied to Ned and MJ not getting into MIT because of their association with Spider-Man. Mm -hmm. 
And so I think, well, yeah, it's silly. I think it's because Peter's our POV. It's root. I, for me, those emotional stakes were really strong because his friends couldn't get in, which is the backbone for why he does almost everything that he does in this movie is for his friends is to try to help as many people as he can. And the ultimate way to kind of help everybody is to have the whole world forget who Peter Parker is, which is kind of like the most ultimate Spider-Man choice. It's a good point, because if it is just him being hunted for being an international terrorist, it does sort of uh, zero in a little bit on his, uh, yeah, defending himself rather than helping others. So, yeah, that's a good point. So we've been talking a lot about redemption and choice for characters, but I cannot let this episode go without talking about redemption for a couple of actors. So we've talked at length at this point about Andrew Garfield and how his movies were kind of garbage. And uh, it was a little unfair. He really brought a lot to the table and, you know, his performance was good. And so I think that this movie offered him an opportunity to really gain some cred back and for people to, to, to love his Peter again. And I think that, I mean, they gave him the best lines. He delivered them so, like, so well. He's fucking funny. He really is. He's got great timing. But one particularly powerful scene for me was when uh, Peter Three saves MJ. And that is sort of uh, the redemption of Gwen Stacy and how she dies in the second Amazing Spider-Man uh, he catches her, and, and it's almost the exact same kind of way that Gwen dies. Um, and there's a moment that they have together. So he's holding MJ, and he goes, are you okay? And she's like, yeah. And and he's clearly emotional. And she says, are you okay? And he looks like he's crying. And he says, mm-hmm. That was so beautiful, honestly. And I cried at that moment, too. <laughs> Um, but someone else I think that got like a, a pretty interesting redemption is Jamie Foxx. So he was in the uh, second Amazing Spider-Man and his Electro was just terrible. It was not good. The way that they uh, made him look, his outfit, like not even having human skin anymore. It just didn't work. It didn't end well. And they sort of like blew over it too by introducing uh the green goblin again so it was just not great but they actually made jamie fox like terrifying like i was legitimately afraid of this character and the music that they had around it his new costume i just thought i was i was really taken by how they they changed these characters up a little bit and i was wondering obviously if you haven't seen the andrew garfield uh movies and perhaps this doesn't resonate as much but did you feel that for any other characters like seeing them again was a way of like really kind of evening out their stories i mean kudos as we talked about to the script for really going the extra mile for andrew garfield I maybe am a little softer than you on like Electro. Like I think, yeah, like he was terrible. Poor Jamie Foxx. Like that was a terrible role. Terrible, like not great looking effects. You can kind of see what they were doing, but Amazing Spider-Man 2 is just a pretty garbage movie all around. Um, so I think he, they definitely like gave Electro kind of more to do, but I really loved what they did um, with Andrew Garfield. And there's rumoring that, you know, he'll get his own live action solo movie one day in the future. And there's rumors that Emma Stone is going to get a Spider-Gwen 
live action movie. So the idea of multiverses, those two meeting is interesting, but that's unrelated to this movie. Yeah. As far as like narrative redemption, I guess I don't get it in Electro because it's another example of someone who's uh, being a full blown villain and is, you know, uh, incapacitated without, you know, consenting to their, uh, their accountability. But, um, but yeah, that's an interesting point. I mean, like as far as like character design, as far as giving these actors breathing room to explore these roles in different ways and more developed ways, uh, without having seen the uh, Amazing Spider-Man two, um, just based on what I've heard, I could see that being yeah, a probably pretty resonant thing. Because Jamie Fox uh, does a great job in this movie, and he often does a great job when cast as like uh, a kind of a more menacing figure. And I think that. Yeah, based on the little bit I know of how he looks in the other ones, uh, that could be really that could really distract from the performance, I would imagine. So seeing him do it in a way that uh, more showcases uh, like he's not he's not a CGI creature. You can actually see him emote. You can see him act. You can see him be the menacing talent that he can be. So uh, in that sense, yeah, I definitely uh, I definitely agree on that front. And as far as Garfield, I, I absolutely agree. I mean, that that particular scene, you can see. And I think it is when Garfield is doing the most work of the three of them is just in that moment. You see him, you know, shift within seconds from like concern to relief to reflection to, you know, being uh, feeling as though he's been redeemed, but also still without a sense of closure. There's a tremendous amount of acting that he does without even speaking in that scene. And it's a real standout moment. And I know I made fun of Tobey Maguire for coming out just like he, you know, got a deal at TJ Maxx. But the visual language of Andrew Garfield is in his Spider-Man outfit never changes it. Tobey Maguire has it under him, but he has normal clothes on. I think also speaks to where these Spider-Men are in their careers. Like Andrew Garfield has lost himself to be Spider-Man because he can't be Peter Parker, Um, which I think visually, well, I can poke fun at Tobey Maguire's outfit uh, visually, I think was a really strong choice. Thank you, Sam, for providing um, a photo of Jamie Foxx in The Amazing Spider-Man 2, because I did not have that uh, reference, and I'm so glad (laughs) that they changed up his look. I was appalled. (laughs) Yeah, you know, that is the... The Andrew Garfield of it all is what I really wanted to get to. Not to like take anything away from Tom Holland because I think that he's earned Spider-Man. I think he really has. And, you know, I'll forever support him as that. But it was really nice to see and to have these moments with these characters we've loved for so long, for like 20 years. And that's really why I think that this is a once in a lifetime movie. What are some other things that folks wanted to talk about when it comes to No Way Home? One really quick thing is uh, J. Jonah Jameson, who, of course, uh, J.K. Simmons reprises the role uh, with with ease. He's he's fantastic. I can't imagine anyone else playing him. But that does kind of raise a question for me. At one point, obviously, in this movie, once the, the spell is cast, only people that know Peter Parker's identity can transfer into this universe. But it's still J.K. Simmons as J. Jonah Jameson in this universe also. So, like, is he, is J. Jonah, J., is J.K. Simmons J. Jonah Jameson in every one of these universes? Which, in which case, I'm fine with, because that's great. But I was, like, yes. a little bit like, wait, what? 
it's because he ultimately is the villain. I think the overarching villain. And he just permeates all universes and uh, is just this menacing presence that can transcend the space-time continuum. <laughs> well, that's, <laughs> I don't know. In the first, in the first of the Spider-Man movies, uh, that we get with, uh, you know, the, uh, the Raimi one, I mean, he does say that, like, though he doesn't know who Peter Parker is, he defends his photographer who could lead him to Spider-Man when he's dealing with the goblin. So I, I think he's not, he's, he's a, a powerful figure who's very headstrong, but I don't think he's a villain necessarily. Yes, he begins as a bad boss, and then he transforms by this Spider-Man series to like a, a like a fake news uh, fucking Fox. This is commentator. That, yeah, this is where I wanted to go with bringing this up. One thing that's hilarious is that um, I've been listening to a pod, a really great podcast called Knowledge Fight. This is a podcast where two uh, comedians talk about Alex Jones's Infowars uh, and just analyze the the constant, you know, slew of contradiction and nonsense that uh, Infowars famously spews out. And one thing that's that truly great that they highlighted was an episode of uh, Infowars where Alex Jones is talking about how he wanted to go see the new Spider-Man movie, but for some reason couldn't. Uh, but his takeaway when he saw the uh, the J. Jonah Jameson character uh, at least the iteration in No Way Home was that it's clearly a parody of him. And he put, he, in like, you know, his ego maniacal way is saying like, he's the big villain of this movie because he's me. Like they made me the bad guy of this new movie because he's like me and blah, blah, blah. And he goes on to say like, and this is J. Jonah Jameson, you know, he's this false journalist who's going out of his way to say things uh, that are not true about Spider-Man and making up stories. And also he also that he can segue into ad pitches for the kind of nonsense wares that he hawks on his network. And after he says this on his own show, Alex Jones pivots to an ad pitch. It's the least self-aware thing I've ever seen. It's like case in point, dude. Like, <laughs> I mean, as far as a character transformation into deep villainy i kind of like the the jameson arc and the fact that he's is he in james garfield's not james garfield <laughs> president james garfield shall now play spider-man in the fourth iteration of this series uh excuse me andrew garfield he he doesn't play okay so it's just one and three there's no yeah there's no jameson character mm. so he could he really he, could. Yeah, he could be. He could be the one in all of them. Which you know what? Uh, I don't have a problem with that. Um, I think that's just another great screenwriting choice. And that was that was the post credit scene of Far From Home, of where it's revealed that J.K. Simmons is bald, Alex Jones type, Infowars. Like, what a great direction to take that character in. Um, like updating it, you know, like updating it for the 21st century. It's just a, a great idea, and I hope. Spider-Man will continue, and I really hope that this J. Jonah Jameson continues. Cool. Anything else about No Way Home before we wrap up? To to talk again, I mean, there's just so much to talk about that I really enjoy about this movie. But one thing that really stuck out to me is, I guess, two things. Marissa Tomei, she's just wonderful in these films. She brings a really great, uh, I think her and Tom Holland have a really great chemistry and play off of each other really well. Um, she brings such a fun energy and different kind of energy that we haven't really seen in other Spider-Man movies. Um, love Sally Field and the actress who played very old Aunt May in the Raimi trilogy, but 
Marissa Tomei just brings her own flavor to Aunt May, which I think is is really great. And the scene where she, it's kind of revealed. And for me, that was the biggest twist of the whole movie is that with great power comes great responsibility. That line's given to her as she's killed by, you know, before she dies from wounds inflicted by the Green Goblin. And for me, that really cemented that this trilogy is the whole origin story for this Spider-Man. Um, we get it in glimpses in the first of the other trilogies, you know, bit by spider, Uncle Ben dying. Uh, but for me, I think that this Uncle Ben is dead in this universe. But I think that this trilogy does a good job of laying the foundation over the course of three movies for the Spider-Man that we're more familiar with. The Spider-Man that lives in his own apartment. He has rent due. Um, he you know, has his own homemade suit, not made by Tony Stark. And so I think it's an interesting, I think that that was a really great end cap of this trilogy of like, all right, now we're entering a more grounded Spider-Man. Spider-Man's not going to go to space anymore. He has his own homemade suit. Um, and we get that with great power comes great responsibility line in the trilogy at the end of this trilogy, um, which I think took me by surprise and I think recontextualized the whole trilogy, which is a pretty outstanding feat for a movie that has so much going on. And for a moment that could have fallen really flat that I think was executed pretty well. And that's a great point too, because obviously there's more of this Peter Parker one, uh, Tom Holland's Peter Parker to come, albeit now um, with no one quite knowing who he is. Uh, but yeah, lay, laying that as um, one, one of the like pivotal foundations of this character and superhero at the end of this trilogy before it's kind of reset. Uh, yeah, it's an interesting move. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. And being able to hear that uh, one more time and said by Aunt May was a really great moment in the theater too. And seeing her grave at the end as well felt powerful. Um, and Connor, I think you're exactly right. I think that this really has been like an extended origin story. I mean, we got Peter Parker and now we're going to get Spider-Man. So um, I'm looking forward to what Tom Holland does in the future. Well, folks, that was Spider-Man No Way Home, a movie that brought me to the theater multiple times. Um, I hope you enjoyed our breakdown. I hope you liked this episode. Um, any final words before we wrap this puppy up? I wouldn't have gotten to these movies if you had not suggested this one, Sam. So uh, having watched all three of them, uh, I'm grateful. I'm, I'm glad to have checked them off my list and glad to have experienced them. And it was... I have a deeper appreciation for this installment in particular, having talked about it. Oh, yay. Thanks, Dave. It's always nice. I always dread when it's, yeah, I hated this and I didn't want to watch this. So <laughs> I'm glad it wasn't that. All right, everybody. So you can follow us on our socials, Butter With That on Instagram, Butter With That One on Twitter, and send us an email at butterwiththatpodcast at gmail.com. And I say one more thing. Oh, yeah. Uh, I just want to thank everybody who's been with us. Uh, we are rounding year four uh, of Butter With That. So uh, this time, about four years ago, we recorded our first episode of Christine's Apartment. I might have mentioned that a few weeks ago. Apologies uh, for the audio quality also of that episode. We've gotten if a you go back, we, we have improved. Uh, but it's just been awesome to go on this journey with you folks, uh, to pick up listeners, uh, over the years. And I'm really, so September marks our four year anniversary of releasing episodes. So just from all of us here, butter with that, 
If you've made it to the end of this episode, thank you so much for sticking with us, for emailing us, for listening um, and supporting us for four years. It really means a lot to all of us because we have a lot of fun doing it and I'm glad people have fun listening to it. Yeah, we love you guys. And I know I particularly love when some of you come and talk to me at work about the episodes that really, really makes me laugh and smile. So- I've been taking the task a few times. <laughs> me my opinions. Take us to task. Write us an email. Like we we uh, still will read your email. So if you have a, some strong opinions about anything, please, please let us know. Please reach us through the worldwide web. Thanks for listening and have a good whatever. This has been a Movie John podcast.